Good morning. How are you doing today? Everybody's a little more mellow on Thursday than they were on Monday. Yeah, we're kind of settling in and uh, wearing out. Um, good time to be practicing what I'm talking about, that's for sure. Um, going to continue on from where we uh, left off yesterday. Um, this... Uh, this, uh, I'm sharing with you a summary of some things I've been sharing with my church, some things I've been sharing with premarital couples. Uh, it's certainly the kinds of things that I share with couples who are in crisis, who come for counseling, and, and, that's, and all of that together, that whole um, uh, group of things is, is sort of how this has been birthed in me. Um, as I said... Uh, on Tuesday, and talking about uh, dating and building relationships, what, how do you, if, if a, a couple is engaged in preparing marriage, getting ready to get married, let me turn the volume down on that fan just a little bit so my Bible pages will stay put. Uh, anybody know how to do that? One of those things over there, we'll just turn it down a notch, whatever we need to do there. The other one. There we go, Beautiful. How do you help somebody get ready to be married, and how do you help somebody who is struggling in marriage? Um, God's Word has the answers for that. I believe that, and I have seen that. Um, in premarital material and premarital uh, preparation-type things, uh, this term is on, often used... Um, this is a topic of discussion, conflict resolution... We need to have good conflict resolution skills. And I, I agree with that, and we're going to get to that essentially at the end of this, uh, this study. Maybe we'll get to it today or else tomorrow. But my contention that I tried to share with you yesterday would be this. My, my thesis, my idea is this. I don't believe that conflict ought to be the norm but what should be the norm? What did we see from Ephesians chapter 4 yesterday? What should be our norm? Peace. Peace should be our, and, and unity, is, unity is the result of that or part of that, absolutely. Peace should be our norm. You know, I think, I think words are important, and I think when we, when we come into something saying, well, I'm going to be good at conflict resolution, I'm really setting myself up to say, I expect to have conflict frequently. Okay. I understand, uh, I've been married 36 years, I understand there are times when things don't go as well as you'd like them to go, and there are conflicts, I get that. I'm not talking about some rosy-eyed perfe perfection that really is unattainable. This is, unatta this is attainable because God is in it. There's a little verse at the end of, of Thessalonians that is just a tremendous promise. Faithful is he who has called you who also will do it. So if God calls us to peace and God says he's the one that's going to empower it, it is possible. It is possible. It may be elusive. It may be challenging. It may take you some time to learn how to live that way, but it's possible. 
And it's not just possible, it's delightful. It's delightful. You can look forward to waking up in the morning. You can look forward to going to work. You can look forward to coming home. It's delightful. Now, I, I said yesterday there are four, don't look at your notes if, unless you've already got it open, there are four D's that describe the challenges in any relationship. What's the first one? Differences. We are all unique individuals. What's the second one? Desires. We all have desires. What's the third one? Decisions. There are decisions that have to be made in any group of people who are in an ongoing relationship, whether it's at home or at work or church, wherever. And the fourth one? Depravities. Well, you did very good. And what's the division here? What's the difference between these three and that one? Sin. This is an, these are issues of sin and righteousness. These are the uniquenesses of any group of people or any individual that have to be dealt with. And we have to... This is, this is, this is a, maybe a more important lesson than you realize because I think we shed blood over this stuff as frequently, if not more so, than this stuff. And one of the great starting points is just to step back and go, wait a minute, that person is unique, and I'm unique. It's not my way or their way, but we're in a relationship, so how can we? How can we live in peace? How can we come together? So the potential for peaceful relationships, God says it's possible, the challenges those four D's, and then we were working through the environment of a peaceful relationship. In other words, there are some characteristics of a Christian that need to be in place. And if, it, you know, perhaps as I was speaking yesterday or as you've thought about this, you've said, boy, I don't know how I'm going to get to having peaceful relationships. The way you start to get there, if you really struggle with this, is to look at these issues in the environment and say, am I a disciple? Am I really committed to following Christ's way no matter what? That's the starting point. Because if that's not true of you, you will not submit to the rest of God's instruction when it comes along to, to specific issues he mentions in your relationships. Be a disciple, be a learner. Work at understanding other people. How do, you, how do you learn about other people? Questions? Okay. Spend time. One of the, one of the descriptions I'm going to give later, being a, being a listener, comes together with this. I'll tell you one of the places where I started to learn this more significantly, and it was being part of a church leadership group. And it was when I was in Tukwila, and we had a basically good relationship among the men and myself that were leading together. But I had that mentality that I think a lot of people do in leadership, which is, I know the best thing for this group. And that was always kind of my posture as I came to the table. I know what we need to do. 
And when you have that posture, while other people are thinking, are talking, you're thinking about how can I say something to, to get my point across and get them to stop putting their point across. And one day I woke up and I thought, if I'm really that smart, that I know what's, I think I know what's best, this guy, he's a Christian, he's called of God. Is it possible that I know all of it? And he doesn't know any of it? <laughs> What's the likelihood God put 100% of the wisdom in me? <laughs> and from that day, I started trying harder to listen and see their perspective. And that was 13 probably 18, 19 years ago. And now with Jim and my other two elders, I, I am completely relaxed when it comes to my way, their way, because we're after God's way. But I will tell you that took me some time to learn. And it took me some time to learn with my wife. And I'm still learning it with my kids because they, they know it was my way or the highway when they were young. <laughs> It's a learning process. But these are the things. You say, if I want to live in peace, then give yourself to learning these environmental issues. Be a, I could write a book, be a Christian environmentalist. Boy, I could probably sell a lot of books until they open the cover. Um, be a lover. Be willing to lay down your life. Be a listener. Listen to, to, to uh, what people are saying when you're working through challenges. Be a confronter when that's necessary. Be a confessor when you when be be man enough or woman enough to say, "Yep, I need to confess my sin. I need to say I was wrong." And then be a forgiver. Stop holding it against people. And then the last one in the environment is be a grower. Be a grower. Turn to Philippians chapter three. In, uh, in one of the small police departments that I served as a chaplain, Chief and I were riding around. It was a small enough department the Chief actually went on patrol. Okay? <laughs> That's a small department. And he, he was talking about, he, he also attended my church, so we had that in common as well. He was talking about another new officer and said, yeah, this, this officer came from a certain place and he has 10 years of experience. He, he said he had 10 years of experience. And uh, by this time, that officer had been working for us for a few months and the chief said to me, he doesn't have 10 years of experience. He had one year of experience and he repeated it 10 times. <laughs> That's what a lot of people do in relationship. Um. I can think of a couple right now. The husband had a career that required him to be extremely intelligent, memorize lots of things, be highly capable, had his own business as a part of that. And yet in his 10 years of marriage, he hadn't given one lick of effort to growing in his ability to understand his wife. So he, he literally kept repeating the same mistakes that irked her for 10 years. And he wasn't doing it because he hated her. He did it because he didn't give himself to growing. 
In Philippians chapter 3, we, we have uh, the Apostle Paul's, uh, another piece of his testimony. And uh, he just, he talks about himself and his, his past and what he used to be like and, and his opinion about that. And then in verse 12, he says, and he, he said earlier, I want to be like Christ. And then in verse 12, he says, not that I'm already there. Not that I'm already perfected, but I'm pressing on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have already arrived at Christ's likeness 100%. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. You really need to contextualize this if you're going to understand it a little bit. Okay, How much of the New Testament did the Apostle Paul write? Quantify that for me if you can. How much of it did he write? Who wrote the most quantity? Let me, let me ask you this question. Here's a Bible trivia. Who wrote the most quantity of New Testament verses? Luke, because he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Who's number two? Paul. Okay? Now, I don't, know, I don't know how much Paul understood that he was actually writing God's word when he wrote it. He knew he was writing truth to churches. I, I really don't know if he understood. I suspect maybe by this time he began to understand that. Okay. You're the guy writing the Bible. And you haven't arrived? What about you and me, friend? Have we arrived? You see, there's a mental posture. And the Apostle Paul is telling the Philippian Christians, who were having a hard time with their relationships, by the way. Isn't that right? Look at chapter 4. How would you like to be known in the Bible? Chapter 4, verse 2. I implore Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. How would you like to be known for thousands of years that way? See, they had some difficulties in there getting along. They had some differences, desires, and decisions, and depravities going on in the church. And so he writes to them, why would he say to them, I haven't arrived yet? Why would he write that to them? Because probably Yodia and Syntyche thought they had arrived. They were coming to the table thinking, why can't she see things my way? Okay, That's an attitude that says, I've arrived. And the Apostle Paul said, no you haven't, and neither have I. And that's why every day, in every way, I've got to be trying to move forward in my Christ-likeness. Because God has put all of this Christ potential in me through salvation, I have to be diligent to add to my faith 
virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And then when I've made a cycle on a bunch of stuff, I need to start over and add to my faith virtue and so on. Every day I've got to grow. If you are living that way, after 10 years, what kind of person will you be? You'll be better than you were when you started. (laughs) Now, let's just theorize that when you got married, you loved the person you got married to. Okay? One of the things I will say to people on their wedding day to get them to smile when they're getting kind of scared and serious, I say, hey, pretend like you like each other. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm getting married, yeah. Let's just suppose that you really like that person you were getting married to. Now, if you give yourself to growing in Christ for 10 years, shouldn't you be more lovable? Ooh, wouldn't that be a way to guarantee success in marriage? Two people who are growing in Christ. Have you ever seen marriage diagrammed like this? Husband, wife, Christ trajectory of their lives is toward Christ what happens as they both grow in Christ they grow closer together see that's the potential that we have but it's only real if you're growing if you're growing and so again last night I talked about being in the word and being in prayer that is the that is the ground out of which we grow in Christ same thing is true in any any set of relationships Did you know that children are born with a sin nature? Did you know you were born with a sin nature? Hmm, hmm. He knew his sister was born with a sin nature. Once a child comes to Christ, if they can be growing in Christ, they should be getting better and better. My kids are pretty good right now. I enjoy them. Hopefully they enjoy me more. (laughs) Be a grower. Okay, so what we've talked about are three things. The potential of, of peaceful relationships, the challenges, and then the environment. And now number four, the process. The process of peaceful relationships. How are we gonna once we once we get that character going uh in the right direction and and we're starting to uh to understand who we're supposed to be. The first part of that process, then, is godly communication. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Two broad rules of communication. Um, I've simplified this down. There's lots of instruction in the New Testament about how you talk. And, you know, we could probably easily quote some of those. You know, don't lie. Um, Don't use uh, obscene language. You know, Ephesians talks about that as well. But look at Ephesians 4 and verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Now, I know this instruction is given directly to the church, and it's an instruction to the body of Christ as to how we ought to conduct ourselves. We should be speaking the truth in love. 
But of the principle of this encapsulates much of the New Testament teaching on communication. Truth and love equals good communication. When people emphasize truth only, what kind of statements will they make about themselves and their communication? When they only emphasize truth. They're, they're critical, but what would they say of themselves? I'm right. <laughs> they would say, what? I'm honest, as though that is the only virtue. I just speak my mind. People know where I stand. Yes, they do. And that's why they stand away from you much of the time. Okay? Now, when people don't emphasize truth but are always emphasizing love, well, what do they sound like and what are they saying about themselves? We don't want to hurt their feelings. Whatever makes you happy. Well, I'm not to judge. Okay? There, there are some truth in all of those statements, but God says it's truth plus love. Is it loving? Is it loving to let someone you claim to love, is it loving to let them live in sin? Why? Why is it not loving? Sin brings destruction. The wages of sin is death. And that's not just talking about hell and eternity. It's talking about the quality of life now. And so if you know, it's the reason that we train our children. You know, um, well, I wouldn't want to curb Johnny's enthusiasm. So if he wants to play in the street, well, let's let him play in the street. That parent gets arrested for child neglect. Even the secular world says, hey, you got to take care of the needs of your child. Okay? If you really love someone, you will confront them at times. But if you really love them, when you're speaking the truth, you're going to do it in a different way than you will if you're just about the truth. And of course, all of the rest of the, these qualities we've been talking about and and a lot of other New Testament truth comes to bear here. There's another rule for communication in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. And the word corrupt there, though, does not mean like we typically think of corruption. It means decaying or breaking down or falling apart. It's a contrast with that which is good for necessary edification. There are commands that talk about obscene language, but that's not one of them. This one is contrasting the way you talk to people. Do you build them up or do you tear them down? And, and of course, it dovetails with this one. But it, the command is simply speak words that build up. Speak words that build up. Come on. And so we put these two together. We say, how can I speak in a way that builds people up Helps them to be more like Christ, but I do it in a kind and gracious way. Christ was very kind to sinners. Who was he, who was he most mm, forceful and, and uh, strong with? Who, who was that? 
The Pharisees, now describe what it meant to be a Pharisee. They were what, but not what? They thought they'd arrived. They, were, they claimed to be religious, but they were ignoring the heart of things. And so they were truly religious hypocrites. And he went after them pretty harshly. I would suppose in God's infinite wisdom, he knew that's what they needed. I'm not sure we get to make that choice. In other words, we are restricted to these, these choices. Speak word, the truth in love, speak words that build up. What happens when you don't follow these commands in communication in a challenging situation? One of the four D's. What happens when you are working through something? You're working through uh, a decision. You're working through a decision. And your communication is not godly. What happens? What's that? You start fighting. Okay. When your communication deteriorates, the words become sinful. So there is sin being cast about. This is the thing you were working on right here. Now we've got this sinful stuff going on. And the net effect then is a cloud between the two of you. Whether it's parent-child, husband-wife, group at church. I have a, a missionary friend who was just telling me about a board meeting he had with some people who were acting ungodly. And at one point, the, one of the men got up and threw his papers down and cussed out the missionary. Okay? Now, the next time they meet... <laughs> how's that going to go? Okay? Now, and you can just amplify that if this is somebody who's living in your house. And so what you've done now is you've, you've brought layers into the relationship and layers to the, to the decision you wanted to make. And so what you have to do now is go back and get rid of this cloud. Now, how do you get rid of the cloud? How do you get rid of that ungodly communication that happened? What do you have to do? Uh, repent. There's a word we already used, which is to confess and to confront. In other words, let's just assume this is an average disagreement, and so both people have been casting the sinful communication back and forth. Who needs to confront? Okay, Matt. <laughs> This is a trick question, kind of. Who needs to confront? Who feels the need to confront? Both. And who is going to need to confess? Both. How fun is that? That's not fun, is it? You've been there. And then, and then what complicates what complicates these things? What complicates these things is pride which is our root sin. It's a root cause of all kinds of problems. 
And so here's my encouragement. If you keep your communication godly, you won't have to confess your sin. See, I like that. I like, I like not having to say, I was wrong. Little self-control up front saves you some difficulty at the end. But it also does something else. If this, if this decision-making discussion doesn't get sinful, then what happens? It becomes productive. (laughs) And you don't have to waste all of that time on all of that repair of the relationship, plus the time you were steaming around, not talking and doing anything. You, You lose time. Due to sin, you lose opportunity. And so be productive in that discussion by, keep, by, by saying, Oh God, I want to just let go right now and tear into this other person. No, I mean, how about praying in those moments and saying, God, would it be okay if I just really ripped this person up one side and down the other? Ooh, I never thought about praying about that. I bet God would say that's okay. (laughs) Do you see how simple this is? This really is not rocket science, but because we haven't thought it through, what we're doing is repeating maybe the way we were raised, maybe our natural inclinations. We just repeat that stuff. And as my friend Mark Wagner philosophized one day when he was preaching at my church, he said, your way of thinking is completely natural for you. We've got to meditate on that for a moment, don't you? He didn't say it's completely right. He said, to you it seems completely natural, but it may not be godly and it may not be productive. And so the command of 1 Peter 5 comes to bear. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. When we're in these, these decision-making times or, or uh, desire discussions or whatever it might be, we want our way. And, and we think, I know the best way. And you might be the best. You, your wisdom might be the best. But it does not justify an ungodly path to get to that decision. And so you humble yourself and you say, okay, God, you have told me to just let go and follow this godly path And I'm going to trust you for the outcome. And when you do that, peace comes to your soul. Peace comes to the relationship. And if you were right, God will give you that moment when your wisdom is exalted. But it will be from him and there will be peace with it. Speak the truth in love. Speak words that build up. Now, the the, the next thing, and we just finished spending quite a bit of time talking about this in our In my Sunday school class, but I'm going to kind of whip through it here. Godly anger management. Godly anger management. I don't even like to use the term anger management because of the movie and the TV show and and a lot of the foolishness that's passed around in the world under the guise of anger management. But if we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, God says you're supposed to manage your anger. Be angry. And you know the rest of it. 
but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not give place to the devil. Wow. Anger is a response to wrongdoing that is created within us. We'll not take time to look, but if you wanted to do a study on anger in the Bible and do a little bit of a word search, put the words anger or angry together with God and search for it, you'll find that God has anger and God acts in anger at times. When Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, was he going, boy, this is fun, it's a great day, aren't we all happy? He was mad at those guys. Why was he mad at them? Because they were commercializing the temple. And that was righteous anger and righteous behavior coming out of that righteous anger. He says, be angry, but don't sin. And clearly implied in that is that anger is, it's not intrinsically wrong. But it can it can be expressed sinfully. And it can be expressed righteously. I believe anger is a God-given motivation to act when there is an injustice. The injustice may be toward us, injustice may be toward others. If we saw somebody being beaten outside the chapel for no good reason, there would be something within us that would go, that needs to change, we need to do something. That response in there is, is anger. We say, that's wrong and it needs to be corrected. And God puts that response in us for all kinds of situations. But just a few verses later, he describes this sinful way to handle anger. And let's just look at it briefly. Verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. I'm just going to give you brief definitions of these uh, just for your meditation, you could do word studies on all of these in the New Testament and, and uh, benefit by that greatly. The word bitterness means to cut or to pierce. Like a thorn or a rose bush pierces your skin. When we meditate on an anger-inducing situation and then act based on our anger, we cut or pierce people. We cut or pierce ourselves, for that matter. Um, the word wrath is also translated rage, if you have the NIV. And it, it's where we get this phrase that uh, people like my dad used to use. He said, it makes my blood boil. The literal meaning here is a boiling, something that boils. And the, the idea that something is seething inside of you. One, uh, one translator said that this seems to be the description of the internal effect of anger. And then the word anger. And this appears to, again, to refer to the outward expression of anger. The word clamor is a very descriptive word. It's, it's an onomatopoetic word. How's that for a big uh, term for you today? Onomatopoeia is when a word sounds like what it is. In English, a real common one is the word buzz. Buzz. You know, things that make that kind of noise. And this word in Greek is 
taken after the sound of a crow. Crag, a crag, a crag, a crag, a crag. And it's translated clamor. You could translate it yelling. In other words, people get angry and they're going, rah, 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 rah. He says that's wrong. Then the word evil speaking, which is purposefully hurtful communication. This word is most often translated blasphemy in the New Testament. And when it's translated blasphemy, it almost always refers to speaking bad about God, whereas here it's speaking bad about other people, purposeful. And then at the end of this verse, he says, with all malice. And it's, that is sort of a catch-all phrase. He's given a list of things that are wrong with all malice. In other words, malice is, is any kind of moral evil. And the idea is, if you have an anger issue and you respond to it with a purposeful kind of moral evil, that's wrong, no matter what it looks like in its expression. Now, this survey of responses to anger helps us understand anger can be experienced and expressed in many ways that are sinful. I would would summarize sinful anger responses down into a couple. And I would put it as externalized, and I'll call that blowing up. And internalized. Clamming up. In, either, in neither of these is, this, is the anger issue actually dealt with. It's just reacted to. And if I were to ask you to raise your hands, which I won't, I would almost guess that that there would be half of you who would say, I tend to internalize, and half of you who say, I externalize. The people who externalize seem to get in trouble more from their relationship partners. The people who internalize, less so. But neither one of them are the righteous way to handle things. Will you look with me for a motivational point at Ephesians 4.27? And let me ask this question. What does the sinful expression of anger accomplish? According to Ephesians 4.27. You give an opportunity to the devil. Let me say it this way. The sinful expression of anger invites the devil into your relationship. Now, I don't believe that's demon possession. If you turn with me to James chapter 3, I'll tell you what I believe, how the devil comes into your relationship. And I think it's real plain in James chapter 3, starting in verse uh, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct. Good conduct. Whatever he does, it's good Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, or out of your flesh, 
and what? Demonic. Did you know it's possible for you to think like the devil? Now, I, I would almost guarantee that if I were to poll you, none of you got up this morning and said, I'm going to think like the devil today. You know, I'm going to live like the devil. I am going to welcome the devil into my relationships today because I think that is the way to go. No, we would all, if the devil were to show up in his stereotypical red suit and horns and trident and say, hey, let me tell you how to live out your relationships today, we'd go, get away from me, devil. But the problem is he comes in very subtly through the world around us. And he comes in through the wisdom that we learn from the people around us, maybe from your own family, depending on how godly they were. And so the wisdom that you operate under is earthly. It's of this world, not godly. It is sensual or out of your physical being, and it's demonic in its source. How do you keep from operating under demonic wisdom? This is a very simple question. What? Simpler. Be the word of God. There you go. It's this wisdom or that wisdom. And so when you're angry, the go-to has to be, how does God say I'm supposed to behave all the time? Does God ever say it's okay for you to just chew somebody up and spit them out? No. Is it ever okay? See, that's the question. No, it's never okay. Is it right to confront when somebody has done a wrong? Absolutely. But is there a right way to confront and a wrong way to confront? Yes, there is. And we've talked about that already. Sinful anger allows the devil access to your relationship. You could also note 2 Corinthians 2.10, if I didn't put it there. And then, the, turn with me to Hebrews 12. You've got to see this if you've never noticed it. Because this, there's a sense in which what I just talked about was the externalized kind of anger. But here's something about the internalized anger. Hebrews 12, um, 14. Pursue peace with all people. There's our instruction again. Pursue peace with all people and holiness. You could just stop there and say, in my anger, am I acting holy? Am I really, truly acting like Christ? Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness... That's an internalized response to anger. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this, how many are defiled? Many become defiled. Do you know what anger does, the sinful response to anger? It spreads sin. When you get hurt, when you are wronged, and you internalize it, and you meditate on it, and boy, that person did me wrong, and uh, maybe you're somebody who thinks, boy, I can't wait till I get a chance to say to them, or 
Maybe you're even beyond that of saying, I'm going to figure out how I can get them back. And you're meditating, meditating. And what you don't realize is within you, because you're living in sin, you are now spreading sin to other people and you won't even notice it. Let me just give you something to think about. If you're not a peacemaker, you're a troublemaker. For yourself and others. If you don't bring blessing into a room, you bring brokenness. Every once in a while, we, uh, we here in the Northwest who are blessed with pretty good weather see the results of a tornado somewhere in the Midwest. You know, um, in Joplin, Missouri, there was a tornado that had winds over 200 miles an hour. And so there's this giant tornado, and they said there was even small tornadoes within the big tornado, kind of like an egg beater going around and just tore up Joplin, Mississippi. Is the wind a good thing or a bad thing? What? It's a good thing. Some of you are scientifically inclined. What's, what's something good that the wind does? Power? What? Okay. Allows the water cycle. Yeah, brings moisture. Yeah. Airs, airs out of your cabin. Praise God for that, huh? There's all kinds of things. The wind is a good thing. But when the wind is out of control, it's a harmful thing. Your anger can be, can lead to good things. But it has to be controlled and handled in a righteous manner. And we will talk about that tomorrow. I'm going to stop and let you try to absorb what we've learned today. And uh, we'll, we've looked at the negative, we'll look at the positive tomorrow. Let's pray. Father... Hmm. There are many things that upset us. Little things, medium things, big things. There are times when we're tempted to do all of these kinds of, of have all of these kinds of wrong responses to evil, to anger. Please help us. Help us today. When something comes up, poke us and say, hey, remember that Bible verse? Remember that thought? And help us to start making those little changes that will lead to a, to a productive way to handle our anger. Thank you for all these families. I pray for peace in all of these families. I pray that you will give them your wisdom and your guidance as they try to live out that peace. I pray in Christ's name, amen.